The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 914 in the Black Bibles. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading, Andrew. Thank you all for being here. Good to be with you this morning. My name is John Trapp, and I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. It is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, at Christ the King, we, we believe that Christianity is simply one beggar telling another beggar where they have found bread. And so if you're here this morning, and maybe you haven't been to church in a while, uh, we're, we're really glad that you're here, and we want, don't want you to be fooled. There's a bunch of beggars in this room this morning, and we all believe that um, the good news is that there actually is bread for the hungry like us, and we would offer that to you this morning in God's word. So let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word together. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much for um, giving us your word, and we pray that your spirit now would help us to understand it and to see how it applies to our lives and how it is good news um, for us this morning. And we pray that you would help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I am the only trap in the trap house who either hasn't yet had or will never at one point have Texas state history. So I've been doing some remedial work on my Texas state history. And uh, most of y'all probably know this, but the phrase remember the Alamo actually didn't come from the Alamo. It it actually began to be said um, during the Battle of San Jacinto, which was soon after the Alamo on April 21st, 1836, when the Mexican army and the Texas army sat about 500 yards apart from one another encamped along the banks of Buffalo Bayou. And there are a couple skirmishes that had broken out, and the Texans outnumbered the Mexicans for a while, but then there were reinforcements sent to the Mexican front lines. Sam Houston, however, discovered that these forces had been traveling for 24 hours straight. And so they showed up tired and hungry. They hadn't stopped to sleep or to eat for 24 hours. And so what Houston did is he attacked. He attacked while they were still tired, he attacked while they were still hungry, and one of the most one-sided battles in American history occurred. A thousand, over a thousand Mexican troops were either killed or captured, only 11 Texans fell, as they shouted, remember the Alamo. And so as you consider that, I want you to think about 
what does, if you want to win a battle, what's a really good strategy? Attack a tired, hungry troop. And that is the strategy that's being leveled against the people of God in this passage. Um, the commentators that I've read on the book of Acts are in agreement that Acts kind of has these three, um, three consecutive spiritual attacks, satanic attacks that are leveled against the church. And this is the third of those attacks. We've already talked about the first two. The first was the attack of physical threat to uh, proclaiming the gospel. People were physically being threatened and persecuted. But secondly, that there was this moral threat, that there was a satanic, satanic attack to try to embed hypocrisy through Ananias and Sapphira into the church. But what we see here is the third attack. And it's, attack, it's an attack on hunger. Making God's people weak by making them hungry. And your hunger, if you begin to look for it, you'll see it everywhere in the Bible. Hunger is a huge theme throughout the Bible. And I would suggest to you, it's a big theme because hunger gives us a window into who God is. Have you ever thought that God didn't have to make us beings that hungered? But he did. He made us these beings that need to be filled up. And then a little bit later, we get hungry again. We need to be filled up and we get hungry again. It makes us, in fact, very dependent. So, if hunger is a window into who God is, my question for you then would be, who do you think God is? Like, when you imagine God... What's he like? A, a friend of mine who's a pastor said, I think a lot of my people imagine God. They would never say this, but like their God is kind of like a skinny, surly Santa Claus. Like, you know, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you're being bad or good. He's kind of like watching you. And if you do something bad, he's kind of annoyed by you. He's not, you know, he's not fat and jolly by any means. He's just kind of annoyed God. And I think that that actually um, runs pretty consistently with how in our culture God is often talked about. That God is somehow fundamentally a judge. That's one picture that we have of God, that he is fundamentally a judge. But I would argue that God cannot be fundamentally a judge. Because for eternity, before he created the world, there was nothing for him to judge wrong. There was no sin. So in his essence, he's not fundamentally a judge. He does, he does execute the office of judge in response to sin, but he's not fundamentally a judge. Another way that God is often depicted in our culture is God as a healer or a therapist. Like God exists to make your life healthy and wealthy and blessed and good. It's kind of like the Santa version, right? But he's grumpy about it. He's annoyed. But again, God can't fundamentally be a therapist or a healer because for eternity before he created the cosmos, there was nothing for him to fix. There was no brokenness for him to mend. So friends, what I would suggest to you is 
what the Christian God offers to us is something that is actually really novel. There's no, there's no other God like the God of the Bible. A God who is one God, three persons, who for eternity has existed in community and in love. Here's the thing. If God is just one and he's not three persons, if he's just one God, that means for eternity God's been lonely. Of course he had to create because he needs someone to worship him. He needs someone to submit to him. This is, sounds like the God of the Islamic faith. A lonely God needing to create in order to have someone to worship and submit to him. But the God of the Bible, in his essence, is a God who is loving. He's a God who, for eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed in love for one another. So they didn't need to create out of loneliness. Why would they create? What if, friends, what if instead of imagining God fundamentally as a judge or fundamentally as a healer, you began imagining God fundamentally as a host? A desiring host who out of an overflow of his love and joy for one another desired to share in his love and joy, and so he created. What if God is fundamentally a host? Do you know what? I think all throughout the pages of Scripture, he's demonstrating to us that that's who he is, and that's how he desires us to see him. Because what does he do with Adam and Eve? When he puts them in the garden, he tells them, look, I've given you all of this. I'm hosting you in my creation, and I'm giving you all of this to take and to eat. And in their disobedience, even think about like how, how, how closely related hunger is even to their disobedience. They begin hungering for the one thing that he told them not to eat. So they trust themselves instead of the host. But that doesn't stop God from trying to host his people, because all throughout the pages of scripture, he is over and over seeking to host them. He takes his people, Israel, into the wilderness and spreads out before them manna from heaven every single day, hosting them in his creation and feeding them. He's taking them to a land flowing with milk and honey to host them in the promised land. David, in Psalm 23, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, and what does this shepherd desire to do? To set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And surely I will dwell all the days of my life in the house of God, to be hosted by him. Friends, it's no surprise then that when the Lord Jesus shows up, what's his first miracle that he does? He fixes a bad host's wedding. He runs out of wine. That's what a bad host does. Jesus is the true good host who brings the best of wine and like 150 gallons of it. He's not being subtle. He brings the best of wine because he's the best host. And people are like confused by this. Jesus even says that. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He wanted to host so much that people are like, this guy's a glutton and a drunk. That's the kind of, he, he wanted to host. He tells stories around the table about a king 
who's having a wedding feast and desires for guests to come so that he might host them. And when those guests come, he sends his servants into the highways and byways and bringing in all of the poor and the destitute and the lame so that they can come and be hosted at the table of the king. He tells stories about a father whose son has run away from him and sinned against him and a father who's scanning the horizon, waiting for his son to return so that he can throw a feast for him. This is who Jesus presents himself to be. The great host, who at the end of all time will host us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's how the Bible ends. The Bible is a story of a God who longs to adopt his children and host them at his table. God is a desiring host. But secondly, I don't think I told you on my outline. First point was hunger, okay? There we go, check. Second point, the response to the hunger. Because we have a hunger problem in Acts chapter 6 verse 1. There's this problem. These widows from the Hellenist community who've come to faith. Hellenists were um, Greek-speaking Jews. And then we also have another community that's described, the Hebrews. These are Aramaic-speaking Jews. Okay, And both have come to know Jesus. But as these people and more and more people are coming to the church and the church is growing and the church is caring for the physical needs of people, which is exactly what Jesus did, by the way. Jesus, he taught, but he also cared for the physical needs of people because he's a host. And so they're having some administrative issues. Like the Hellenist widows are being overlooked. And there's a response that needs to happen here. Okay, how is the world going to know that God is a desiring host? That's the question that they're facing here. How will the world know that God is a desiring host? One way is by the actions of God's people. Look, it's, it is like a non-negotiable to the church that they don't do something about this. They call a meeting. This is like the first kind of church controversy. And they don't disregard it. This is something that's important. There are widows who are going hungry and we've got to do something about it. God's people all throughout the pages of scripture are meant to display who God is like to the world around them. All throughout the Bible we see God doing that through his people. These people, Israel, that God spreads manna from heaven before, welcomes them to his table. They're going to a land of milk and honey. Do you know what their job was? God tells them their job in Exodus 19. He says this, Verses five and six, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's a lot packed into that. But one of the things that I want you to see is God is saying, listen, you are my treasured people. I love you. I want to take care of you. But he's not just going to like take care of them, and then send them to Madagascar, to a little island where no one will ever mess with them. And you know, like, well, you, you can just be my little holy huddle on like some remote place. He sends them to the most populated, most diverse place on the planet. And he says, you're gonna be like a kingdom of priests there, which was a radical thing for him to say because he's saying that to the upper echelon and the lower echelon, all of Israel, Male, female, kid, everyone, you're going to be a kingdom of priests. Well, what does a priest do? A priest represents the people to God 
and God to the people. So that you're gonna go, you're gonna go to this really diverse place, this really populated place, and you're gonna show everybody who I'm like by the way that you love them and live among them. That's, why, that's what the law is. That's why he gives them the law, so that they can demonstrate who God is. How will the world know that God is a desiring host? First, we see here, by the, one of the ways is by the actions of God's people. And there's a hunger problem. And God cares about our hunger. And so he's going to do something about it. And so they start this office of deacon. All right. In verse 2, did some of y'all, did some of y'all think the disciples were being kind of like catty? Did you catch that? Look, they, they go, it, sound, it sounds like they're being like, they think they're too good for this. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Right? That, when, when, you, when I first read that, I was like, man, sheesh, it's their deal. Woke up on the wrong side of the bed or something. When they say to serve there, this is where we get our word deacon. That Greek word diakoneo. It's where we get the word deacon. Someone who serves. But listen, the disciples, even though they sound like they're above it, that's to our modern ears, they are not saying that. Because in verse four, they use the same word to describe what they themselves do. In verse four, they say, we will devote ourselves to ministry, to prayer and to the ministry diakoneo, sorry, there we go, Greek. The ministry of the word, diakoneo of the word. Here's what the disciples understand that they have, they have a particular role to serve the church and they can't do it all. If they try to do it all, it's everyone's gonna be hungry. Everyone's gonna be physically hungry and spiritually hungry. And a hungry troop is a weak troop. A hungry family is a weak family. So what they need then is for particular people to minister to a particular people in a particular way. So they call these men to serve as deacons. And here's what's interesting. All of these men have Hellenistic names. They all have Greek names. Who are the people who are going hungry? The Hellenist widows. So there's a particular group of people in the larger body of the church who are particularly gifted to minister to this particular situation. And that's true today for all of us. Because all of you friends are a kingdom of priests if you're in, in Christ, if you're following Jesus. And kids, I want you to listen to this part, okay? This is important for you because you might not believe this. Let me see your faces. I see you. Okay, I got you. All right, kids, listen to this. There are people in your classroom that you can be a better pastor to than I can. I'm not kidding. I'm serious. You can be a better minister you can serve them, you can diakoneo, big Greek word, you can serve your friends in your classroom in a way that I can't. I'll use an example. Ninth grade girl. Let's say you've got a friend who's having a tough time, she's um, discouraged, maybe she's struggling with depression, who knows, she's having a tough time. You know what? There's only so much that I can do to minister to her because I'm like a middle-aged man who drives a minivan. I'm a dad. Okay, like she's not going to hear me encourage her in the same way that she'll hear you. She won't. The same, the same is true for working moms. There's people in your office that will hear you in a way that they won't hear me. 
The same is true for country club members. The same is true for widows in our midst here. There are ways that you can speak into people's lives and situations that I can't. And we need each other for that. We need each other. Because there are particular people who need to be ministered to in a particular way through your particular gifts. Peter, Peter catches on to this. Uh, he, he describes this in 1 Peter 2. He says, he's talking to the church. You are a chosen race. Sounds like Israel, right? He's not talking about Israel. He's talking about the church. You're a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why has God done this? Why has he chosen us? Why does he draw us to himself? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So that you can show forth the excellencies of the Lord Jesus. Our priestliness proclaims the excellencies of him who called us. Rosaria Butterfield was a professor of um, women's studies and queer theory at the University of Syracuse. She was a tenured professor, radical feminist, and she was going to write a paper on like the evangelical um, world's views of Christianity and politics. And all so she begins interviewing pastors, going around interviewing different pastors, and she meets this Presbyterian minister, and he had her over for dinner. He hosted her, and then he had her over again, and his wife, and he and his wife had her over again and again, and they developed a friendship through hospitality, and she became a Christian, like the last person in the world, hated Jesus, hated God, hated the Bible, but through the love and the actions of God's people, they actually showed her, this is what God is like. And in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, on the hospitality of God and his people, she writes, our post-Christian neighbors need to hear and see and taste and feel authentic Christianity. Hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbors in prayer, food, friendship, childcare, dog walking, and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. Our people the people in this world need to see hospitality. Did you know that this is why we have church steeples? For hundreds of years, before like the Holiday Inn Express existed, right? You got the Roman road, someone's traveling, they're going from one village to the next, one town to the next. Will I be, where will I stay? Where's a safe place for me to find shelter? It was the church. They knew that if they showed up at the church, the church actually had, there was a rule, the Benedictine rule. If they showed up at the church, there was a rule by which they knew that these people would receive them. Listen to how it's described. This is written in 500 AD. Let all guests who arrive be received like Christ. For Christ is going to say, I came as a guest and you received me. That's a quote from Jesus in Matthew 25, 35. You, I identify with the traveler. That's what Jesus is saying. I'll continue. And to all, let due, on, let due honor be shown, especially to the domestics of the faith and to pilgrims. In the reception of the poor and of pilgrims, show the greatest care. 
The greatest care should be shown because it is especially in them that Christ is received. Friends, this is biblical hospitality. This is biblical hospitality. We need to rethink of the ways that we consider what hospitality is. White Southern hospitality, which is what I grew up in, is hospitality for the sake of the host. Like how beautiful my spread is, fine china, the silver. Biblical hospitality is hospitality for the sake of the guest. And that's what we see the church, it's non-negotiable for them. We've got to show biblical hospitality to these widows who are hungry. Got to do something about it. And I want us as a church to be thinking about this more and more together. And so one of the things that we're doing, I want you to know about this, I want you to be praying for this. We, we have, um, with the session's approval, with the, the, the GC's approval, we are starting what we're calling a, the Silver Road Vision Team, the Silver Vision Team. And this is a group of four men, four women, who are going to imagine and pray about and study how can we, with all the resources that God has given us, the land resources, the money resources, the like human capital and abilities that you guys have, the particular abilities that our particular people have in the particular place that we're in, how can we, with those resources, show hospitality to our neighbors? This is gonna be a, a process a, 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 for probably about half a year to a year. We're gonna spend praying and seeking and considering what can we do with all of this that God's given us to show hospitality. Pray for us in that. I'm excited to tell you more about it and see where God takes us in that. But it's passages like this that tell us we've got to be thinking about that. We've got to be showing forth to the world as we believe, as we understand ourselves to be a kingdom of priests. If we're going to show what the world, if we're gonna show the world what our God is like, we have to begin imaging him to the world imaging his hospitality, his gracious hosting. Because otherwise, the world will seek something else. They will look somewhere else. And the way that the world will know that God is a desiring host is, yes, it's through the actions of God's people, but it's also through the faithful preaching of God's word, which is the other non-negotiable that we see here in this passage. The disciples are like, listen, we have a job to do. And if we spend all of our time on the administration of getting food to everyone, which we need to do, we have to do that. But if that's all of our time, then we're gonna starve. The world is gonna starve. Because the world needs the food of the good news of the word of God. And that's what we need serving as well the food of God's word we must be nourished because people are seeking they're going to seek to fill that void somewhere there's a uh, show on Netflix called Chef's Table if you want to get really hungry watch it it's amazing dishes all these different cooks and chefs are making all over the world in the second episode Dan Barber who's kind of one of the pioneers of like the farm to table movement um, he's the founder of a restaurant called Blue Hill Farms in New York uh, he's kind of like scanning his farm that he's started and thinking about his life and in the show he says does this lead to a happy life I don't have the answer and then he goes on to say, but isn't our life one attempt to fill a void after another? And then he goes on to say, but I'm trying hard. 
trying hard to fill the void. And friends, our neighbors are trying hard to fill the void. You and I are trying hard, oftentimes, are we not, to fill the void. But the only thing that will fill the void is Jesus. And we know him through his word. And you need to see that Jesus, Jesus is obsessed with God's word. He talks about it all the time. Interestingly enough, the first temptation of Satan with Jesus, when Jesus is fasting in the wilderness for 40 days, he attacks Jesus' hunger. He says, hey, turn those stones into bread. Do it. Trust yourself. That's what's behind the temptation. Trust yourself. You can, you, can, you can take care of yourself on your own. You can take care of your own hunger problem. But Jesus knows, he knows that there's only one thing that will take care of his hunger problem. And so he quotes from Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was nourished by God's word. We have 1,800 verses of Jesus talking in the New Testament. 180 of them are him either directly quoting or directly alluding to his Bible, the Old Testament. 10% of what we've got is just Jesus saying something that's already been said in the Old Testament. Jesus dripped the scriptures because it's the food that we need. In John 4, 32, his disciples um, approach him. He's just been talking with a Samaritan woman at the well and they ask him if he's okay, like do you need anything to eat? And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. This is a funny interaction, I think. The disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Like, where's his secret stash? Like, what's he doing? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. How does Jesus know the will of him who sent him? The scriptures. It's Jesus' food. It's our food. How will our world be nourished? How How will we not go hungry? The world will know the hospitality of God by us living it to them and preaching it to them. Preaching the good news of the word of God. That Jesus, Jesus was so committed to hosting us that he went to the cross for us. Jesus was so committed to God's word that he went, listen to what he does on the cross. This is stunning. He's on the cross and it says, this is right before he dies. After this, Jesus knowing that all was finished now said to fulfill the scripture I thirst. While he's hanging on the cross, what's on Jesus' mind? Fulfilling God's word so that he could rescue you. He's that committed to his word. And so we must faithfully preach it. Because when we preach it, what we'll find is that there is a God who longs to host us. When we preach it, what we'll find are passages like John 14 that says, In my Father's house, Jesus says, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's going to host you. He longs to host you. He welcomes you. He says that if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God is not fundamentally a judge. He is not fundamentally a therapist or a healer. He is fundamentally a host, and he has gone to the teeth of death and back again to welcome you, to host you at his table. And we get to bear witness to our resurrected Lord Jesus by extending hospitality, the same kind of hospitality to our neighbors. We need all of us for that. 
They, they needed everyone for this work in the book of Acts to do this. It wasn't professionalized, just the disciples, you go do it. They all need it. Kids, we need you. It's awesome that we're doing that Code 45 thing. We need, we need to show hospitality by extending grace. We need to show hospitality by like throwing parties in our field and playing kickball together. And welcoming our neighbors to the table. Let's do that as a family. And you see what the result is? As the word of God goes out, you see what happens? As the word increases, the church increases. The church increases. And I love this little detail at the very end. Do you know who the church increases with also? Priests. Priests, why? Because they, they saw the church being like priests. They saw the priestliness of all the believers and they said, they got it. That's it. That's it. That's what, we, that's what we do. That's what we've been doing all along is extending the, the hospitality of God to the world and they're doing it. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the host. And he desires to host you at his table. Let's pray. Lord, you are our great high priest, Jesus, who has gone into the holy of holies on our behalf and because of that, you actually welcome us. And we are actually even now seated with you in the heavenly places. And so we pray even now as we um, celebrate this meal together that we would more deeply experience our union with you as you host us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.